The following presentation was recorded live by the Jewish Ethics Institute. So today's topic is um, the refugee crisis, specifically, I mean, focused somewhat on the Syrian refugees, but it's relevant to all refugees. Um, and the, the question is, and we're going to try to use Torah sources to, uh, to set, shed some light on the topic um, from a Torah perspective using some um, Jewish texts and help us um, figure out, should we, question is, I guess, should we be letting them in, as I put here on the top, um, it's a, there's a question of a country, as a country, what should we be doing to help the Syrian refugees? Are we obligated to take them, uh, take them in? Are we not obligated to take them in? Um, there's also the question as individuals, so we'll try to discuss both those, um, both of those, um, as far as uh, mostly from the country perspective. Um, but as we'll see, it's relevant, and there might be different answers as an individual once they're here already. Um, how we should treat them. Okay. So the question I put on top was, how much are countries obligated to compromise their own security and economic system um, and values to help the less fortunate? Which is really so. It's a general question. Um, not just related to, to uh, Syrian refugees, not just the refugees, but we'll see most of these sources are addressing similar situations. Okay, um, so the, the first sources that I'd like to discuss is that in the Torah itself, there are many places in the Torah, now it's probably one of the most oft-repeated mitzvahs in the Torah, which is the mitzvah known in Hebrew, the term is v'haftem etager shall love, thy, love the stranger. Um, and this is, like I said, it's mentioned, I believe, I don't know if I put it down here, but I believe 36 times throughout the Torah, this mitzvah is mentioned, um, more than almost any other mitzvah, surely more than keeping kosher, Shabbat, um, and many of the other mitzvahs that we're familiar with. Um, exactly what this means, and there's various places the Torah mentions it using different terms. The word uh, the Torah uses in the, in the Hebrew is ger. Now ger can have two different meanings, can have two different translations. Um, the word ger literally um, can mean a stranger or it can mean a convert, okay? And depending on the context within the Torah, um, sometimes in some places it means, yeah? what, was the, what was the second? I didn't hear it. Word, you gotta come closer, because I, I didn't, what was the second meaning? Convert, as in a, someone who converted to Judaism. So you have the, one means stranger and one means convert. Okay, it's the same exact word. It's a two-letter word. Ger, gimel, resh. Someone can come move up. Um, so the, as I quote here, some of the verses say there should be one law for the citizen and for the stranger who dwells amongst you. Again, the word is ger. So depending on the context, it could be used both ways in some verses. Um, in some verses, it's understood to mean specifically a convert. In other places, it just means in general a stranger. Okay. Um, and what's interesting is the Torah gives actually gives reason here. In most cases, as we know, the Torah does not apply a reason for a commandment. In this case, in more than one place, the Torah seems to be telling us the reason. And I quoted here in number two, it says, You shall not taunt or oppress a stranger, for you have yourselves been strangers in the land of Egypt. Okay, so the Torah is telling, you, telling us, us as Jews, we should know better, because the fact is we have been there, done that. Um, specifically, as you know, in the Exodus, we were, prior to the Exodus, we were in the land of Egypt. We were considered strangers there. 
Um, and that's why the Torah specifically says, be, um, it's not the only reason, but the Torah seems to be saying, because we've experienced, we've gone through that specific experience of being a stranger in a strange land, we should know what it's like, and therefore we shall not do that to, to other strangers, so to speak, quote-unquote strangers. Okay, so that's, that's a very important um, concept. And I, and I believe the reason why the Torah has to stress this multiple times, numerous times as we stated, is because um, I think it's human nature. Human nature is people are different than us, we treat them differently. We know that in our society, in, in, but in almost every society, this is universal, people even seen in Israel today where they have Ethiopian Jews, um, and they're Jewish, but they're still treated differently. Um, treating people differently from different cultures is something, I think, inherent in us as human beings, and God understands that, and therefore God says that's something we need to overcome in human nature, um, and working on our attributes of being able to treat other people equally, and the fact, the mere fact that their skin color is different or that they have a different culture is not a reason to treat someone differently. Okay, so it says very clearly here, as we're saying, um, a stranger, a, uh, there should be one law for the citizen and for the stranger who dwells in us. Okay, and there's another uh, medrash I quote in number three, you shall not wrong or oppress the ger. Okay, again, the stranger, for you were gerim in the land of Egypt, you shall not wrong with words, says the medrash. The medrash is interpreting this verse to tell us not only, um, there's two, there's, there's many parts to discrimination. When you oppress someone, you, there's many ways you can oppress them. So says the medrash, interpreting the verse, you shall not wrong with words, and you shall not oppress financially. That it's, uh, in, there's many instances, as we're saying, many ways of um, discrimination, and none of those shall be done, whether it's financial discrimination, um, whether it's um, talking to them, talking down to them, whatever it may be, all of those fit under this heading of you shall not oppress the stranger. Um, now it's important to note, just as far as, I mean, this is relevant also to the, to the question of, of uh, in our own country, of, of not only Syrian refugees, but Mexican immigration, where of course you have to treat, it says you shall treat the stranger and citizen equally. Um, Maimonides explains in numerous places that this, this only means if they accept the law of the land. If the people coming in, and we're going to talk about that a little later, do not accept, in Maimonides' case, he's talking about in the land of Israel, if you have non-Jews uh, moving into the land of Israel, not the state of Israel today, that they don't necessarily use the laws of the Torah to decide state law, but in, in the Eretz Israel, meaning the, in the uh, country of, Israel, of Eretz Israel at the time, the law would be if any non-Jew would move to, to the land of Israel, they would have to be accepted equally, treated equally, but with the main caveat that they have to accept um, the seven, one of the, all the seven Noahide laws, okay, which are the basic social laws, um, such as do not steal, do not murder, um, no idolatry, things like that. Um, as long as they accept those seven Noahide laws, they don't have to accept the 613 commandments, they don't have to become Jewish. As we know, uh, one of the beauties of Judaism, it's a universal religion. We don't say uh, if, you're, if you're not baptized, you know, you're going to hell, or we don't say if, if you're an infidel, if you don't believe in Allah, you're, 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 um, you should be killed. Uh, Judaism says as long as you accept the basic seven Noah, the, the laws of justice, then you're going, you can go to heaven just equally to a Jew, to a large extent. So it's the same thing if a stranger comes to the land of Israel, says Maimonides, as long as they accept the seven Noah laws, we have to treat them equally. We don't have to make them citizens, per se, but we have to treat them, they have to get equal treatment. Okay, so that's a very important thing. But if they don't accept the seven odd laws, then we, have, we don't have to let them into the country. Okay, so that's a very important caveat, as we'll see. Okay, so now, um, come, there's 
um, one of the beauties, as, as I always say, of Torah is that it covers almost every topic. This is a, you'd think this is a new social topic, but as we'll see, there are many sources which seem to address this issue um, of refugees coming into a land. Want to come closer? It's okay. Thank you. Okay. Um, so some of the principles we find relevant in the laws of charity, which I'm going to apply here. So, so the famous case that Talmud talks about in Bab Matia, a principle known as Chayecha Kodman. That means even when it comes to charity, when it comes to uh, helping people, um, your life takes precedent over someone else's life. Okay, as this is talking about as an individual, uh, we'll see as a society also. So the Talmud is a famous, uh, discusses a famous lifeboat ethics case, which is a case of two people traveling in a desert, okay, and, um, and there's only one canteen of water. One of them has a, a bottle of water, no Walmart around, okay, in the middle of the desert. Um, so does, the question is, does that person have to share his water with the other person. If they don't, if they should be shared the water, it's only enough for one of them. It means if they share the bottle of water, one of them is going to die. I'm sorry, and they're both going to die. If they share the bottle of water, both will die. If one of them drinks it, one will live. So what, what do you do in that case? Talmud discusses this. The Talmud says if both of them drank, they would both die. But if one of them drank, only he might make it back to an inhabited area and live. So the first opinion, um, Ben Petura, was of the opinion, better both should drink, you know, share your water, as a Jew, you have to share your water, and then, and even though there's, you're probably going to die, both of you, that is better than seeing one's friend's death. Okay, there's a lot of discussion what that means. We're not going to get into the details. Uh, um, most opinions say he, this. He, they understand Ben Petura's opinion as saying that it's the assumption is there, there's a good chance you're going to live if you find, you know, once you both drink, you can go for another two days, and hopefully you will find the Walmart. You will find. An oasis somewhere, and then, or some other hikers coming the other way. So, but if you're for sure both going to die, many say that you shouldn't do it anyway. But the second opinion is what we we rule. Um, that's the that's the normative opinion, and uh, Rabbi Kiva, and that's what I want to focus on. So the second Rabbi, Rabbi second opinion says Rabbi Kiva came and taught, your brothers should live with you. There's a verse in Leviticus. It's actually in within the law of uh, um, lending money. Actually, the laws of charity. So it says, you shall give charity, you shall help your indigent brother. But it says, um, in, as a caveat, it seems to be that the, the Torah adds on an extra few words. It says, your brother shall live with you. In Hebrew, it's v'chai achicha imach. Okay, your brother shall live with you. And Rabbi Kiva says, from there we see that your obligation to help an indigent person, your obligation is only if you can live with him. But if in any which way, by giving the charity, by helping the other person, that will not allow you to live, will affect your life, as we'll see, in a de detrimental way, then you have no obligation of charity. So it's a very important statement. Rabbi Kiva is sta stating here that the Torah is giving a caveat in all acts of kindness. When you're helping someone, it shouldn't, you don't have to help someone um, to the detriment of your own life. Okay? So on the simple surface, it means specifically e only if, if literally you're going to lose your life. In this case, with a with bottle of water. If I share the water, there's a good chance I'm going to die. Okay, so we keep saying you have no obligation to share the water there. Because even though, yes, you shouldn't, uh, you shouldn't see someone dying, especially a friend, but you have no obligation when, by sharing the water, that will um, obviously cause your life to be in danger. Yes? So is it only if your life is in danger? Or okay, if, great I question. Take detri I take detriment. So then how does I say, well, yes. if I don't have a budget for charity or whatever, you know, if that... So that's a great question. I'm like in college or... Okay, so we'll explain in a second. So great question. The question is, where do you draw the line? So meaning, obviously, 
if I, anytime I share my wealth, so now I'm not going to be able to make my payments on my Lexus. So is that detrimental to my, is that considered detriment? Where do you draw the line of what's considered detriment to your life? So it's a good question. So on the surface, Rabbi Kiva's statement in this case is a radical case where literally you're going to lose your life. There's a chance you're going to die if you share your water. So Rabbi Kiva is saying in this case, clearly you're not obligated to share your water, and that's how we do rule. The ruling um, discussed in many of the later authorities is you don't have to share your water in this case. We, we rule like Rabbi Kiva, not like Ben Petura. And that's what I put on top here. There seems to, this seems to dictate. We're on the top of the right side of the handout. Um, does everyone have a handout? Anyone need one? There seems to dictate that perhaps we don't have to save refugees at the expense of risking our own lives. Okay, now, question again, how do you define risking your life? So, uh, so the, the Talmud in other cases seems to imply that when we say to the detriment of your own life, it's not only if you're literally risking your life. For example, another case the Talmud discusses, I didn't put it, there's no room on the sheet here, Talmud discusses where you have a, two villages um, on a mountain, okay, and you have a stream coming down the mountain. You have a village on top of the mountain, the stream passes by their village, and then um, there's another village on the bottom. Says the Talmud, let's say the village on top will take water from the stream, and there won't be enough water for the bottom village. It's their prerogative. They can take the water because it's coming to their village first. They have a right to take it, even though um, there's not going to be enough for the bottom village, and people might die. But since it comes to their town first, comes to their village first, they have a right to take it. The, Gemara, the Talmud goes on to say, um, I believe it's all opinions, if I remember correctly, agrees that not only, not only if they need the water to drink, let's say they need the water to wash their clothing. There are other things that society, um, society needs besides drinking water. You need water for other things. Okay, they need water to, like we're saying, let's say to wash their clothing. Says the Talmud, even if they need the water just to wash their clothing, they're still allowed to use the water on top of the mountain, even though the people on the bottom will not have enough water to drink. Okay, so it seems to imply that the fact is there are, there are, under, there are certain norms of society. Part of uh, living in a normal society is you have to wash your clothing, you have to have water to wash your clothing. Okay, so therefore the village on top has a right to do that, even though um, the people on the bottom might die. Okay, the way it works is that we're saying this principle called Chayecha Kodman, my life takes precedence either as a society, our life as a society or our life as an individual, takes precedence before you help someone else. Okay, so your family, your life, as we see soon, your family too, but your life as an individual surely takes precedence. So even as a society, the Talmud seems to be implying, the same concept exists. So if the norm of society, again, we're not saying you're, you can't make your payments on your Tesla, right? We're, so we're talking about where you're, the normal parts of society, and this is relevant, I mean, there's many applications to this, so let's say we take a take, uh, question of Obamacare, or things like that, so, one can make the argument, listen, we, we need to put all our money into healthcare because people are dying without healthcare, right? But obviously it's not true. As a society, right, the government, the federal government gives money to culture, to parks, and to other things which are not necessarily a necessity for society. Society can live without opera, okay, without theater, but the government gives money, much money to the arts, even at the expense of many hospitals that are, can't afford to treat their patients, okay? So obviously as a society, this concept exists where we, there's a certain norm in society. Where there's a gray area, I mean, where exactly the line is drawn. But the point is, even at the expense of people's health, we're still, we have a right to live as a normal society. Okay, so it's not only, to answer your question, it's not only if it's a danger to your life that you don't have to help someone else, even if it's going to affect your life, as, we, as I said before, in a detrimental way, in a true detrimental way, 
something that's a necessity, you'll be missing something that you consider a necessity, or our society considers, and every society is different than that. So then that would be also something to, to, to be considered, I think, according to this, that we wouldn't have to help um, other people. Even if, again, if by helping them, helping refugees, it would be detrimental to our way of life, so to speak. Okay, any, any questions? Yeah, sure. um, where in the Talmud is the Second story one? about the, um, village. The, village, the two villages? Okay, in the so I have to look it up on my phone. That's why I have smartphones today. <laughs> okay. So I don't know, I didn't put okay. it down here, and okay. I, so I don't know about it. I'll, I'll, I'll let you know after class. Okay, so, so that's, so, but it's a very important uh, piece of Talmud, again, where we see Something that, if, that will detrimentally affect the society is considered, even if it's not a life-saving measure, something that we can still um, say is a necessity for our society. Okay, so that's um, principle number one, a very important principle in general, called chayecha kodmin. Our life, or your individual life, or a life as a society, takes precedence over someone outside our society. Okay? Um, now, of course, in the ideal world, as we see, you're supposed to help everyone. Yes. There's no end to that. There's yes. no end to the things that we need to maintain our society. We always have at that at that rate. Again, depending depending on where you draw the line. You know, how much how many parks do we need? How many opera houses do we need? How many theaters do we need? So there is a line. I can't tell you the line, but there has to be a line somewhere. There is a gray area. I can't you're right, I don't know the, I don't know exactly where the line. There is a line. Okay? Now, there's another principle in the laws of charity um, called, known as the principle that means when you have, we have an obligation to help indigent people, um, wherever they may be, but it has to be, as we know, we have limited funds as, a, as an individual, again, or as society, as Jewish society, even the Federation has limited funds. Um, so, so the question is, what, how do we prioritize, prioritize in giving of charity? Are we deciding we have uh, whatever it is we're giving away for the year? whatever number that may be, how do we decide who to give to first? Okay, so you might have your individual, uh, what you like better, but the Torah and Halakha, the Talmud, based on verses in the Torah, actually discusses how to prioritize, prioritize in giving. Okay, and the one of the first um, principles is that the indigent of your own city come before indigent of a different city, or a different country, for sure. So that when you're watching late night TV and there's you know, they're advertising for cloth pallets in Rwanda, wherever it is. So those people are not first on your list, even though it's very sad. And you should, listen, if you have, we have unlimited funds, we should be helping the people in Rwanda. But the homeless in Houston come first, as we'll see. Okay, so that's a very important concept within um, Jewish law, in the priorities of giving, that the poor, the indigent of your city come before in the, um, people in other places, in other um, locales, other countries. Okay, it says actually second, after we give, take care of the people in our city, then um, it says the poor of Israel, the poor of Jerusalem come first, and the poor of the rest of Israel. So even before giving to Israel, um, whatever, wherever you give your charity to, the first you have to take care of the people in Israel. Yes? So, what is the uh, defining quality of somebody who lives in your city? Do they have to be there for a certain amount of years? They have to be accepted? That's a good a question. Meaning, how, how you, does he have to be a citizen or not a citizen? So that's, I'm assuming it means someone who, who actually lives here, like who's a resident of the city. How do you exactly define a resident? Uh, whatever the state, uh, the state, the local laws that define that. But I don't know, there's, I don't know if there's a halakhic definition of a resident. Probably in, in halakha, what I've seen is 30 days. 
be considered someone's a resident, but I think it does, in this scenario, I think it means someone who actually lives here. Someone's just coming into town because they want to, they heard there's good benefits here, whatever the case is, so that doesn't make them a citizen. Right. So that's a good question. I don't, I don't know, I'm not sure I know the answer is how you define a citizen when well, it comes to this. Well, that brings or resident. A, it brings a larger question about the law because I know that there's a general concept in Torah that you follow the law of the land, um, right? That's a whole different question. Uh, well, uh, okay. following the law of the land, but, but, it, but that's only when it doesn't contradict the Torah law, by the way. If the law of the land contradicts the Torah, the Torah overrides the law of the land. That's but like, what, what if there are laws that um, relegate this Syrian refugee crisis that disagree with Torah? I mean, what do you do in that situation? Do you take matters Again, well, we, can, we can't decide what the society should do. I and mean, that's up to the government, the federal government, the state governments that they, at least who are claiming it's their right to decide. But, but we can't decide. I mean, as an individual, that's a different question. Should I be helping these people? Should I try and go out there and invite them for Shabbat dinner once they're here? So, so that was what we're talking about. You, we can't decide what society should do. That's not up to us. That's up to the federal government. Okay. okay so um, we're, we're trying to see what the Torah's perspective is. Either, what should the federal government be doing according to... Yes. And maybe this is not a legalistic sort of thing, but there's community of the heart. You know, if I see Turkish refugees or whatever, I may feel very connected to them. They may feel and may even be part of my community, even though I'm not in that locale. So how is that? Yeah, but it doesn't, it's not, a, we're, we're talking about it literally from a halachic perspective, a Jewish oh, law, and a legal okay. perspective. That's very touchy-feely, yes. I think there's a lot of emotions involved in this issue. That's why it's such a, been such a big debate in the country. But we're not trying not to discuss from the emotional perspective. Actually, I'm a, a disclaimer, which I didn't make, is I'm this, my father was a Holocaust survivor. I wouldn't be here if, we, if this great country didn't take in refugees. Um, but I try not to let that emotional issue necessarily cloud the legal issue. I mean, there's a legal question here. What, what should we be doing legally? Again, from a secular legal perspective, and also, in this case, a Jewish, from a Jewish ethical perspective. So we tried, it's never good to let emotions get in the way of it. Okay, listen, we have to, yes, of course you have to feel for them, you have to feel their pain. The question is, again, and we'll see how it plays out here, you know, how is, uh, should we feel, should I let my feelings decide what I'm gonna do if it's detrimental to my own family and my own society? That's the question. Really? So, okay. Um, okay, so now, so again, using this principle of what we call that means the indigent of your locale takes precedence of helping people in other places in the world. The question now becomes, um, so, so how does that work in this situation? Um, should, we, should we, you know, people will make the argument, and people have, uh, some of the candidates made every argument, but some of the great candidates we have running for president um, have made this argument of, you know, listen, we have to help our veterans first, we have to get everyone health care, there's a lot more we need to do in our own society before we go and spending millions or trillions of dollars to help settle foreign refugees. Okay, so that's, that, well, what I'm saying is that might be a valid argument according to this principle. Should we, if our veterans, and again, I, I'm not, I don't know the facts, I'm not arguing the fact, it will be dependent obviously on the facts, but if there are people that are not being helped according to some in our society. Should we be taking in refugees from the outside before helping our own? Okay, and that would be, that would be this question of this principle right here. Um, actually, I have a, my, I'll figure out how they're related. It's my sister-in-law's brother um, asked this, posed this question to a um, authority in 19, 
72 or 73, I believe, Moshe Feinstein was one of the biggest Allah authorities alive at the time when the um, uh, Vietnamese boat people were coming into the United States and there were many protests. As you know, they were turning back the boats in 1972 or 73, I don't remember, before my days. Um, so there was a question of should, as a Jewish community, should we, we be out there protesting um, to let these people into society? So he went to Rabbi Feinstein at the time, asked him this question, and he said, for sure, as a Jewish community, we should be there protesting. He said, but before we go ahead and organize protests as a Jewish community, we need to first take care of our own community. Once you finish addressing all the problems within our own Jewish community, then you can go out and protest for the Vietnamese bone people. So in, in principle, what well, he was... We'll never finish taking care of them. That's yeah. a good point. So that's the question. So that's really the question here. Should we prioritize? Should we be first worrying about our own before we go and worry about it? That's exactly this principle. So, so he said, well, it's meaning in principle, of course, we should be helping these people and protesting. But again, if that's going to affect, um, and we're not going to have enough funds to take care of our own because we're spending the funds on people from the outside, so of course our own community comes first. That's really what he was saying in essence. Well, and yes. how do you define our own community? So I'm mm -hmm. thinking of Houston, and I'm thinking... Well, he, he was referring to the Jewish community, which is... Well, Jewish people, yeah. I was going to say, there's a lot of people in Houston, but there's some communities in Houston, you know, where the drug culture is rampant and things like that, that so I'm... You're right, so even that, so you're so. right, there's a difference, as we're saying, right. in the... In when you have the list of priorities, so there's a list, in, in charity there is a list of priorities. First is your own family, of course. Then you have the Jewish community, and then you can go outside the Jewish community to your own city. Once you finish, so you're right, like she's saying, in a certain sense it's endless. But we need to prioritize in who we're going to help. Right? We can't help everyone. So the question is, who should we be helping? That's really the question here. And, and the Talmud saying here, based on this verse um, about charity, that you have to first help your local people before you go and help the people in Rwanda or in Syria or wherever. Yes? So much of a disservice, though, when we start, I mean, I think that there's, um, like, there's this really important message, I think, throughout the Torah of, you know, not closing our hearts and hardening our hearts. And I think that I worry that if we start prioritizing people like us over people who are not like us, then we are hardening our hearts. And, and I understand that there's a need to prioritize people, you know, taking care of our family and taking care of other people, but but if I am not, if my heart is not breaking when I see people in need, um, in my own community, the, you know, drug users or, or Syrian refugees, I'm worried about my spirit, and I'm worried. 100%. So, so we're not saying you sh your heart should be breaking. That's not what we're saying. Of course, your heart. As we're saying, emotionally, we should be crying. We see these people, and truly in need, we should. Our hearts should be breaking. The question is, how do we act? We have to. F do, do we help first? Help. The, there's <coughs> the hearts breaking for people in the community. Also, believe me, as a rabbi, I know there are many people in the community who our hearts should be breaking for. But sometimes, when you watch late night TV and you see these people, and they know how to do the PR better. So your heart breaks for them and you take out your checkbook, you know, two in the morning, you're swiping your credit card because you see that commercial on TV about this kid with a cleft palate in, in uh, Africa. But the question is, is that the right thing to do? Listen, it's a beautiful thing to do if you can afford, but the question is, who should our heart be breaking for? Everyone, no question. The question is, how do we act? Should we be spending trillions or millions on those people in Africa or people or local people, or like we're saying, who need, or need drug rehab or whatever it is? Well, that's really the question. So again, emotionally, of course, we're not saying you should, your heart shouldn't break. And you can harden your heart. The question is, how do we prioritize? That's really the question. No question. I mean, I don't know if you were here at the beginning. We have to help these people. But it's a question of priorities. So, 
Yeah. Israel actually did take in Vietnamese boat people in that time. Okay. Good for them. That's a great thing. When the United States didn't. Okay, so, so, um, uh, another, another thing I put in here. The United States has a patchy history with refugees of all kinds. It's true. So now the, the other uh, thing is here, I put a number six, which is a, another um, principle in the laws of charity, which is, says the highest form of, uh, of charity is a loan. Okay, when, you, when we try to help someone, it's best not to give a handout. Because a handout, as we know, you can spend it if you're going to a homeless person, give it to a homeless person, he's going to buy alcohol, you might buy alcohol, drugs. I, if you can help someone, my money says, in the levels of charity, the highest level of charity is to help someone get back on their feet. People quote it as a Christian concept, you know, Jesus and help a man to fish. Of course, it's uh, taken from the Talmud uh, earlier than Jesus, um, as many things were stolen from the Talmud. But the Talmud says very clearly the, the highest form of charity, my money codifies it, is helping someone get on their feet. It means giving them a job, helping them establish a business. Okay, so what, I actually heard this from, I don't remember which candidate um, who, claimed, who made this claim, and that's why I put it, I, originally I didn't have this here, I think it was uh, Chris Christie said this, he said, we need to be helping them over there. Why, why do we have to bring them to the United States, spend millions, and we're giving them handouts because they're gonna come here, they're not gonna have a job, they're not gonna have anything. We're gonna have to support them. He says if we can create, and many uh, generals have spoken about this also, create, um, you know, uh, What's it called? Uh, like zones, like safe in zones. Iraq, safe zones within no, Syria. Fly, 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 no, no, fly zones, safe zones in Syria, where we can help them in their own society, where they don't need to now start a whole new life, come from somewhere where they're going to need handouts to survive. They're not going to have health care. They're not going to have jobs. Um, that that might be a much better idea. So clearly, that is a Jewish concept. I'm not a big supporter of, of Chris Christie, but that concept is a Jewish concept in the sense of yes, if you can help someone, if there's a way to help them in their own society where they can keep their jobs and stay in place and be safe, um, that clearly would be a better option. Um, and, and cheaper in a certain sense, and probably better for them too. Because they're not starting a whole new life where they don't speak the language, etc. So that's, that is something that I put down here. Again, that's, that is a Jewish concept where if we can create s safe zones and not give them handouts, that is something where Manny says is one of the highest levels of charity. So again, practically, I don't know if it is practical, is it possible to work, not possible to work, I don't know the facts on the ground, but there are those who say that is something that can be done. If that's true, so then clearly that would be a higher level of charity. Okay. Um, now, this, so it's fascinating. So in my research, trying to figure out what the Torah's view is, I found um, one of the things I mentioned earlier in the class was one of the beauties that I find in the Torah is that people think it's not relevant to contemporary issues. Written 2,000 years, you know, 4,000 years ago, archaic document. So the Torah, everything you find, almost everything within Jewish texts, all contemporary questions. This is a perfect example of that. I found um, this was written um, in the 1100s. This question was posed to Jewish uh, leaders at the time, to the Sizers, where there was a question of what they called the Cheskat Yishuv. This was, as we know, historically Jews, even in the 1100s, this is the beginning of uh, ghettos. And Jews lived in ghettos. You lived in a very small part of town. You have to understand the historical context of the time where all the Jews lived in this small relative area and um, surrounded by a wall. They could only do the commerce. They could only do business in that, in the Jewish ghetto. Um, and this was in many countries throughout Europe um, and the Middle East at the time. 
So the question was posed, other Jews, not even, we're not talking about foreigners, we're talking about other Jews, would come try to move into the ghetto. It was very limited space. They all had their established businesses already. There wasn't enough to have these other people coming in to allow them to also do business there. And the question was posed, do they have a right, do the people of this ghetto have a right to say, we don't want, we're not allowing other Jews to move in here, okay? Um, you know, the question is, who owns the right, so to speak, to inhabit a city? Do the people of the city have a right to say, we don't want sort of a, Texas is a question of zoning laws, right? Who we want in our neighborhoods and, and who we take in. Do we have a right to do that? Can we say, we don't want these people moving in? We do that here, the zoning laws, by, or, or not zoning, what's it called, the uh, association. Deed restrictions. Right, deed restrictions is really, in essence, what we're doing. We're saying, listen, if you don't uh, paint your house this color or have this type of car, we're not going to, you know, you can't park your car without the tires you know, you're fixing on, in your driveway. Right, because we know that we're trying to keep out certain uh, people of socioeconomic, lower socioeconomic status um, in our neighborhoods, which in essence is what we're doing. So the question is, do, do the inhabitants of a city or neighborhood have a right to do that um, halachically, okay, according to Jewish law? Um, and as we know, 30, I think, it, I believe it's 33 states by now, 36 states, 36 governors have said that they, will, they do not want or they will not allow Syrian refugees in their state including our great governor, Governor Abbott, has also made that statement. Of course, it's not up to the states. It's a federal, um, from what I've read, I'm not an attorney, but it is a constitutional right that's up to the federal government, not up to the individual states. So the governor is saying they don't want to do it. A lot of it is an election year. And, uh, um, but, but do they have a right to say that or not? Again, so legally, I believe they don't, according to American law. But um, the, according to Jewish law, this, again, this question was posed in the 1100s. So it says the right, I'll just read it for you, number seven here, the right to inhabit a city during the Middle Ages, many Jewish people could only live in designated areas of the city. Often Jews from other cities looking for economic opportunity seek to move to other cities. However, the Jews of that city feared that the newcomers would deplete the sources of their livelihood. Furthermore, the space in the ghetto was often cramped and insufficient for the original inhabitants' natural growth. Accepting newcomers could come at a real expense to the existing Jewish population. Do the existing inhabitants have the right to stop the newcomers from joining their community? That was the question that was posed. Um, so, of course, this is Judaism. So there were three opinions um, during the time, in, in that time. So the first opinion was given by someone called Rush, which is an acronym, I think, for Rabbeinu Usher. Okay, his name was Rabbeinu Usher, um, Rabbi Usher. At the time, he lived in, it says there on the sheet, um, he died in 1357. So his opinion, he says, was, if the people coming in, again, this is fellow Jews, mind you, in those days, are going to share the burden of society, that means they're going to be doing business there, but they'll also be paying taxes, um, share their share fear of taxes, um, as the rest of the community says, then you have no right to say that they can't live there. Okay, so meaning it's not, if you're an inhabitant of a city, you don't own the right to decide who lives in your city. Okay, that's basically what he was saying in essence. Um, and therefore, you can't stop them. If they're not going to pay taxes, they're not part of society, they're not giving their fair share to society, then you do have a right to say that. But it's an economic issue. It's not, uh, again, you don't own that right. But it's just if you're going to live in our society, you have to have, um, again, uh, pay a fair share. Yes. So does that justify not allowing the Syrian refugees in then? Um, according to this opinion, um, again, it would, it would boil down to whether they're going to pay their fair share of taxes. If they're going to work like everyone else, eventually get jobs, listen, um, many refugees, as we know, that came in, and Jewish refugees after the war, or before the war, they, they clearly were paying back, paying our fair share in society. 
So the, the question is at which point, but, but uh, you know, I, I don't think this says, listen, the first six I mean, months, the they might Yes, in the short term, right. Eventually, if they get jobs and they become part of society, so then I would say that this doesn't say that you can't accept, okay? Um, so that's what he says. He says, if he's only coming for business, and is not willing to share the burden, the inhabitants have the right to stop him from competing with them and causing them to lose their livelihood. So again, it's, it's purely an economic decision um, that if you want to live in our society, you have to bear the burden of society. Okay, that was opinion number one. <coughs> Turn to the back here. Um, opinion number two is uh, someone known as the Marik, also an acronym, I don't remember what it stands for. He died in 1557. I lived in 1557, and he said, no, newcomers, he seemed to be of the opinion that yes, as a society, we own the right of inhabitants of our, our city. Okay, the city, meaning the, the residents of the city can say, we don't want people moving in here. This is our city, which is, in essence, that we call associations or uh, deed restrictions to some extent. Okay, so, and meaning irrelevant of the economic, they're gonna share the economic burden or not. That was the Marik's opinion. The third opinion I found, Someone known as Rabbeinu Tam, who uh, lived in the 1100s, um, he tried to circumvent the question, from what I understand from his writings. He said, he basically just to prevent, he didn't really answer the question, he was just saying that when people move in the community, in those days they would have a tool, community had a tool, something known as excommunication, where they, if they didn't like you for whatever reason, you were doing something wrong, which didn't fit into their society, they would announce in the synagogues or whatever it was that you can't do business with this person. That obviously kept the unwanted out. People who didn't want living there, so not that he's saying we have a right to do that, but we have a right to say we're not going to do business. You, know, you can't sort of like, a, I don't hate to compare it, but the BDS movement, people are saying, don't buy Israeli, or whatever the case is. So, uh, so it's similarly, he circumvented the question and saying, listen, we have a right to decide who we want to do business with. If these people are going to come in, we're going to boycott their business. Yes? Yeah, so I have a question about these corruption uh, texts here in 7. Um, you said that they are referred to uh, ghettos. And I'm just wondering um, if that is the sort of geohistorical location of these laws. Uh, is it appropriate then to use these laws that pertain to ghettos to Houston? Is, are you saying that Houston is a ghetto, that the United States is a ghetto, that the states are ghettos? And if they aren't ghettos, if we're not crammed and forced into living into particular neighborhoods because of our religion's uh, affiliation, to what degree do these laws have any relevance to the question? It's a great question. So, so you're right. In essence, you, um, the only reason I mention the ghetto part is because to understand, even though it seems, on the surface, it would seem very harsh, these laws that we're saying, don't do business with these people. But the fact is you have to understand in that context why, why they need it. It was really economic danger to their lives. So that's a good point, which you don't necessarily have. Some will make that argument. You do have that even in big cities where they're going to come and take our jobs. and. Again, what the facts are, I can't tell you, but people do make that claim. But what I, the relevancy, what I, the reason why I'm comparing it is, it's just a greater question here which was posed, which is, do we, have a, as inhabitants of a city, have a right to decide who gets to live in our city? So the, the fact that it was a ghetto is irrelevant to that question. The question, the principle of the question, and the principle they were trying to address was, the context was, yes, it would have created economic hardship because of, like you're saying, the geographic location of the ghetto and the fact that they were stuck in this little neighborhood. But the essence of the question is a, is a very important question. Do we as a country or as a society or even as a city or even as a neighborhood have a right to say we don't want people living? Do we, have, do we own the inhabitancy of our city? 
So that's the question, that, this is why I'm bringing it. That's why I think it's relevant. You're right, as far as the context, it might be different. Some would argue it's the same, because if, they, if we have millions of them or hundreds of thousands of refugees coming to this country, uh, in Houston, where we have uh, all the many people losing their jobs now, are these people gonna threaten our jobs? You know, there's only a limited amount of jobs. So you could make the argument, even the context might be similar, even in a big city like Houston, but even if you don't agree with that, and, or the facts are different, which again, I can't, I can't speak for the facts um, in our situation, but the question is, the, the principal question here, which was posed, is do we as a city, um, or citizens of a city, have a right to decide who gets to live in our city? I think that's where it's relevant. But it's a good point. The context is, may, may be very different. Um, yes? The Jewish text say anything about uh, children versus adults. I know that uh, it, this is not directly related to the Syrian refugees. Well, it is, in some extent. But if point. they're traveling by themselves, for right. instance, if they're more, more vulnerable right. than other refugees, does that take Right. Pressure? So there's no question. I think that as far as children, there's a few issues. One is the economic issue would be less impact as far as them, they're not coming in, uh, to do business where they're going to take a job and they're not looking for life. On the other hand, they need to be completely supported. So there is an aspect, no question, children are very different. They're not, they're less dangerous, so to speak, for the people who make that argument. They're a danger to society as far as values. We can train them with our American values. So, so I, children might be different. Again, I didn't see anything in the text about it, but it's a good point. So we might and maybe should treat children differently. So I didn't see anything addressing that per se, but I do hear that. Um, so that's some, of the, that's some of the sources here. I want to get back to a fascinating um, concept in Jewish philosophy, um, which comes from the Torah itself, known as Midat Sdom. Um, as we know, Sdom, um, the city of Saddam, famous for many things, but uh, one of the things it was famous for in the Torah was, as we know, it was destroyed in the times of Abraham. Um, Saddam was destroyed for their anti-kindness uh, laws, I guess you can call them. Um, they, they were known that they actually passed laws, um, five minutes? Okay, thank you. That they passed laws against um, having guests, against hospitality in Sodom. That was one of the reasons uh, the, the Torah and the Medrash explains why the city was destroyed. Okay, um, it was actually illegal to host guests in the city. So, and they found the Medrash that says that one of the, the concerns of the city wasn't that they were just vicious people or an anti-helping other people. It was they were concerned about people outsiders coming in. It was a very rich city in, in minerals, as anyone who goes to shops in the gallery knows. You have the Dead Sea, um, you know, the mud they sell and all that stuff from the Dead Sea because the Dead Sea is where Saddam was. If anyone visits Israel today, that's where Saddam was, really, literally right near the Dead Sea. And a lot of the, the sulfur and rich minerals that come from the Dead Sea area are traced back to the story of Saddam. So the measure says that the Saddam was full of natural resources, um, precious metals and other resources. And in their selfish fear that their wealth might be diminished, they allowed no strangers into their country. So they passed these anti-kindness laws, anti-hospitality laws specifically, um, because they were concerned about people coming in and stealing and, so to speak, um, receiving of the, their largesse of these resources within Saddam. Okay, and there are many stories about it, of why, um, of how it was destroyed at the end. At the end of the day, the Talmud discusses this extensively and says that we, as Jews, cannot, and even codifies laws, we should not, should not act like Saddamites, as Jews. Okay, and it prohibits um, what's, what the Talmud calls Saddam, Saddamitic behavior, okay, on many levels. Uh, primarily on this level of, of where it discusses, and it's paragraph two here, 
um, where it says we can force someone, let's say, uh, you know, there's different cases of kindness, right? So let's say you, your neighbor comes over and wants to borrow your lawnmower. Okay, so now if he borrows your lawnmower, he might break, he's going to use up your gas, there are things that, so you can't force someone to do kindness, to, to lend them your lawnmower or your car. Okay, but if it's something that will not diminish your item, for example, let's say he wants to borrow a towel, okay, and nothing happens, you just put it in the wash machine, he's going to bring it back to you clean, and if you don't, it says the Talmud, if you don't lend it to him, you're called a sadamite. You have the attributes of a sadamite. And the, the Talmud says, as a matter of fact, you can force someone to do kindness in those situations. Okay, you can actually force someone to do, to do kindness. Um, and that's called, what I quoted here, zenan of zelochasar. That means in a case where one benefits and the other person loses nothing, you can actually force someone to, to, uh, to do those acts of kindness. Um, and this is very important to know as, as a society, if we can help these refugees, again, without losing something, I mean, obviously it's going to cost some money, but without in a great way affecting our society, and we don't do that, and that's a terrible thing. Where that's called sadomitic behavior. Okay, that's something to be aware of. It's, a, it's quoted off within, not only it's an, it's an ethical violation, but it actually was saying legally you have to help someone if you're not losing something by helping them. Okay? Yeah. So these uh, <coughs> laws that have just been passed in some cities against feeding the homeless, that those are what you're talking about? In a certain sense, about. probably, I would, I would probably would classify the assignment of behavior. Again, if they're saying they're basing on studies because increases home, you know, again, I don't know the facts, but some people say you're making the problem worse. That's part of the argument by giving them food because, I don't know. I mean, but, but technically speaking, yes, that's something that Judaism would not agree with. Um, not allowing us to, to feed the homeless, you know, is it, it's illegal to feed the homeless. That's probably something that would fit under this heading here, almost like sad in that, in that sense. But I just want to point out, because I'm running out of time, and she's going to cut me off one more minute. More minute. So there's, there is a concept um, where the, where the Medrash also discusses that in a certain sense, kindness can be misguided. Sometimes we take altruism, especially as Jews, um, we want to be so kind that it could be misguided. And an example of that is actually from Saddam's, um, um, as we know, Abraham's nephew, Lot, Torah tells a story about him. He, when the guests, he did invite guests to his house. He had seen the beauty of aiding, of, of hospitality with Abraham. And what happens is, so the, he has the, he hosts the three angels, without getting into details of the story. He hosts the three angels in his home, and then the whole town, they come outside, they surround him, they say, give us those angels. We want to rape them, we want to pillage, we want to kill them. And him being so kind, um, Lot, he, he says, no, I don't want to do that to my guests. He offers them his own daughters, okay? And there you have a, a case of warped altruism. Okay, here's Lot, he doesn't want to hurt his own guests, so what does he do? He offers his own daughters to be raped and pillaged by the people outside. Okay, that's the story of the Bible itself. So they, they discussed that there, which this is important to understand that this, a, a, a misguided hospitality altruism is not a good thing in Jesus. Okay, we have to be kind as Jews, yes, as a society, but to go ahead and sometimes be, be detrimental to our own society by helping others, that is a problem. And we have to keep that in mind. Like again, just to sum it up, of course we should be helping Syrian refugees, or any refugees for that matter, as much as possible, but if there's gonna be a safety concern, um, and again, I don't know the facts, if there's literally, there's, there's people are coming in, some of them are related to ISIS, some of them are not, I have no idea. But if that argument holds true, if there's no way to vet these people, and it could detrimentally affect our society, then we need to really be very careful. And our beautiful altruism that we have um, is misguided if, at the end of the day, our own society will be detrimentally affected. Thank you very much.
please visit our website at j-ethics.org. Shalom. Shalom.